summer to see how they challenge you to look at the world differently and to live differently. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 20. Kristen, thank you. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the, Lord, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen. Uh, the psalm was written about 3,000 years ago, but it's never more relevant than it is right now. It's a song about strength, especially about God's strength and how he uses it. Uh, the name Friedrich Nietzsche mean anything to anybody? No need to be embarrassed if it doesn't. He was a German philosopher back at the beginning of the 20th century, probably most famous or infamous for his pronouncement that God is dead. You've heard that one before. Now, he was honest enough to acknowledge that if God's dead, that that actually creates a problem practically. Because we used to, he said, look to God both as a judge and a justifier for our actions. If you wanted to know what you should do and what you shouldn't do, we look to God. So if God's dead, what do we do now? He says, well, if God's dead, it's all about power. You do what you can. You don't do what you can't because might makes right. Now, some professors at the sociology department here at the University of Texas will teach a variation on this theme. History, they will say, is about power. Some people have it and they want to keep it. Others don't have it and they want to get it. And it's the conflict between the two that shapes history. Justice in this framework gets redefined too. Justice is helping the people who don't have power to get more power. It's uh, not an exaggeration to say that Americans of all the people on the face of the earth are more obsessed with power than anyone else. So it's all the more important, I think, that we understand God's view of power and how we should look at it. I'll make three points this morning. First, God's omnipotence. Second, God's left-handedness. And then third, 
what difference it should make to us in practice. One of the Hebrews' titles for God is El Shaddai. You've heard that one before. Usually translated God Almighty. It is an appropriate title for God because his power is an essential part of who he is. If somebody asks you, who is God? What's he like? What would you say? I mean, it's a good question, right? This is not a how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of question. And you might say in response that in some ways God's like us. He's not an impersonal power. He's a person who thinks, feels, creates, acts, chooses. And we do these things, human beings, because we are made in his image. It's not so much that he's like us <laughs> as we are like him in the end. But in other ways, God's not like us at all. We are physical. God is a spirit. We are finite. God is infinite. And his infinity in the bot is, is described usually in three theological terms. First, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Second, he's omniscient. He knows everything. And third, he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Now, if you've been looking at the Psalms this summer, you've probably seen already how God's power is celebrated over and over in the Psalms. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and he stood firm. God made the universe as an expression of his power. Psalm 46, 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms tottered. He utters his voice and the earth melts. By his power, God providentially rules everything, even now. And in the Psalms, God's exercise of his power is spoken of most often as God using his right hand, right? Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And here in Psalm 20 and verse 6, David writes, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now, nobody knows exactly when Psalm 20 was written or what the circumstances around its writing were that inspired what got written. But I think it's pretty clear, just looking at it, you can say some things. David was in trouble. David needed some help. Not an unusual state of affairs for David. Not an unusual state of affairs for us either. Look again in verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. One commentator that I read on this passage thinks that David is a soldier. This is the night before a battle, and he's scared to death. He's afraid he's going to die. So he's praying that God will do something overt, something grandiose, something obvious like he used to do throughout the Old Testament. Noah's flood, when God destroyed every human being on the face of the earth except for Noah and his family. The Tower of Babel, 
when he confused and divided the pride of men by messing up their language. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire coming down from heaven, the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14, when his people got rescued and Pharaoh's army got drowned. That's what David wants to see here in Psalm 20. If God is omnipotent, if he is almighty, why don't we see this all the time? I am a proud owner of the complete works of Calvin and Hobbes. Now, is there anybody out there who does not know what the complete, what Calvin and Hobbes is about? Uh, Calvin is a little boy. This is a comic strip written and illustrated by Bill Watterson from 1985 to 1995. The complete works consist of three volumes and about 1,500 pages. One of my lucky children will inherit it one day. <laughs> Calvin's a little boy. Hobbes is his stuffed tiger. But to Calvin, Hobbes is alive. And the two of them discuss all sorts of things like Santa Claus, for instance. Calvin says, this whole Santa Claus thing just doesn't make sense. Why all the secrecy? Why all the mystery? If the guy exists, why doesn't he ever show himself and prove it? And if he doesn't exist, what's the meaning of all this Christmas? And Hobbes says, I don't know. Isn't it a religious holiday? And Calvin says, yeah, but actually I've got the same questions about God. David and Calvin are asking the same question here. They want God to step out of the shadows. They want him to do something commendable, visible, unmistakable. They want more of God's right hand. In the Psalms, David asked God for this all the time. Do you ever pray through the Psalms before? Yes, one after another, day after day, letting the content of the Psalms shape your prayers. If you haven't, let me encourage you. You'll find it an interesting undertaking. And if you have, if you've already done this before, I have a question for you. Do you ever get embarrassed by how persistent David is? David's asking, not just asking, demanding things from God all the time. Psalm 20, he wants God to give him victory in battle. Psalm 41, he asks him to heal his diseases. Psalm 137, he wants him to kill his enemies. In contrast, <laughs> the things that I ask for for God are pretty tame most of the time. Uh, for instance, I frequently ask that God would provide for my future financial needs now. A large sum mysteriously deposited in my retirement account I think would be a good example of God's right hand. I also pray that he would make my own sanctification quicker, clearer, and more unmistakable to everybody around me than it is. Instead, what I get are my daily bread and my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. Oh, 
the film classic, Cal, uh, I'm not Calvin and Hobbes now here, I'm on to uh, The Princess Bride, <laughs> features a left-handed sword fight between the Dread Pirate Roberts and uh, Inigo Montoya. Inigo is losing the sword fight, but he's smiling anyway, right? And then when the Dread Pirate Roberts asked him, why are you smiling? He says, because I know something you don't know. I am not left-handed. Believe it or not, there's a theological point that I'm making here, and it's not a point that's original to me. According to Martin Luther, there's a great theological lesson to be learned here, that God himself appears to be left-handed. He wrote a great deal about the difference of the use of God's right hand, the overt expressions of his power, and the use of his left, in which God uses power indirectly, paradoxically, mysteriously, in a way that appears to be weakness and defeat but which inevitably establishes victory just as certainly as his right hand ever did. You see it in the Old Testament in places like the ten plagues that God visited on Egypt. We see the right hand here. We see God's right hand in the New Testament also in the miracles of healing the blind, the lame, the lepers. But even in the Bible, God seems to prefer his left hand to his right. How long were God's people slaves in Egypt before they were delivered? How long did they wait for the coming of the Messiah before he came? And when he did arrive, it was not with a bang, but a whimper. He was born in a podunk town surrounded by bad rumors. He realized that his mother was pregnant before she got married. Jesus' birth is a good example of God's left-handed power at work. But even Jesus' disciples in the New Testament got frustrated with the lack of God's right hand. In Luke chapter 9, they're in a village that does not receive them well. And in verse 54, his disciples turn to him and say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? They wanted to see God's right hand too. But instead of seeing God's right hand, they got the supreme example of his left the cross. Instead of calling down fire on his enemies, Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, crucified. It's hard to tell who David is talking about here in verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Uh, the anointed one here may be the king, 
but the word that's translated the anointed one here is quite literally Messiah. And the word that's translated save here is the same word that Jesus' name comes from. And to be sure, God did answer Jesus with the saving might of his right hand when he raised him from the dead on the third day. But he followed that up at Pentecost by sending the Holy Spirit to give the disciples the ability to preach the gospel and take it from me. If you're looking for an example of God's left hand at work, preaching is about as good an example as you're ever going to find. Throughout the Bible, God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is at work in all things to accomplish his purposes. But more often than not, he seems to prefer his left hand to his right. And if this is so, we need to recognize it. And if we don't, we may be out of step with what God is doing in his kingdom right now. It's a danger, I think, that Americans face more often than other believers because, as I said earlier, Americans are a right-handed people. We like the open exercise of power, right? Jesus making a whip and driving the money changers out of the temple in Mark chapter 11. We go, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I like here. The problem with this is that if the only things that you see that God is doing are with his right hand, you may be blind to most of what he's doing. My mother was diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer just a few years ago. She wanted to see God's right hand. She wanted to be healed of her cancer miraculously. I did too. I, I prayed for her healing. And failing that, she wanted God's presence to be with her tangibly as she faced death that it had never been with before. And when neither of these things happened, she felt betrayed, even though God placed her in her home, surrounded by her family and her friends up till the day she died. If we become too obsessed with power, we miss seeing God's hand at work in our troubles, which is when we need to see it the most. Frederica Matthews Green was a pro-life feminist and a believer whose writing I have long endured, not endured, enjoyed. Uh, she wrote this, oh, 25 years ago. It's about the pro-life movement, but it's about all of us, too. She says, after seeing 20 years after 20 years of seeing success slip out of our grasp, maybe it's time to stop being surprised at the unfairness of it all. Maybe it's time for us to wonder if God has lessons for us to learn in this time of fasting from jubilant victory. 
While pro-lifers feel deeply that God loves deeply the babies lost to abortion, we may have forgotten that God loves us just as much. We may not recognize that love because we tend to think of God as a pal, always trying to make us happy. We forget that he's our father who disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For now, our chastisement seems to entail having to pay for deadly mistakes, having our words distorted and ridiculed, and seeing political victory go to our opponents. It was, after all, within the power of God to give the pro-life movement easy victory within months after Roe versus Wade. We cannot say why he did not. But as the long years pass without the victory for which we had hoped, perhaps we ought to look for blessings we never thought to pray for. Humility, broken pride, loss of trust in our own power. These are not the kind of blessings that make it into our prayer list. We prefer the more utilitarian blessing of power to change things power that is able to fix what is broken. Someone once said that when we imagine God dealing with the world, we think of a giant hammer driving a giant nail. This is, in fact, how God did heal a broken world. But he let the nail be driven into the hand of his own son. When we dare to do God's work, we enter into that same mystery, strength perfected in weakness, dying to self in order to live. Why does God more often than not strengthen us with his left hand rather than his right? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, this is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And he calls us when we can't see his right hand at work, to trust his left. David ends Psalm 20 by saying, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The prophet Isaiah put it a little bit more eloquently. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table, as we do every Sunday morning, 
to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ laid aside the glory he had known with the Father before the foundation of the world, that he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross for our sakes, and that God raised him up on the third day. And the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead on the third day is now at work in us in all things. Let's celebrate it together, but before we do, let's pray. Dear God, it is so easy for us to be blind to what you're doing. We know that you are at work in all things for the good of those that love you and are called according to his purpose. But all too often, Father, we are blind to it. Open our eyes, I pray, to see more clearly that we can be encouraged and glorify you as we ought to. But even when we can't see, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace the presence of your spirit we need to trust you. Thank you again for the work of Christ on our behalf, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.